Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest is Martin Liu. Martin is a truly modern-day, multi-talented entrepreneur. With a history of investing in and leading tech businesses from small beginnings to impressive exit strategies with impressive results, Martin now leads the Growth for Good investment strategy. Growth for Good is a business accelerator focused on partnering and investing in high-growth social businesses in the digital media and technology sector with an aim to demonstrate that business can be a force for good. Martin is a chair and non-exec of a number of businesses. He writes for the business press and undertakes speaking engagements on entrepreneurship. His philanthropic engagements focus on primarily youth unemployment and the next generation of entrepreneurs. So welcome, Martin, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us here today. I'm delighted to be here. Really good to see you both. Um, Martin, there are many reasons why I'm so pleased to have you on this podcast. And at the top of these, um, this for me is that you represent for me a very modern sort of entrepreneur combining your business acumen with high growth social business opportunity. The role of entrepreneurship, innovation in the energy transition is critical. The skills that you and others have underpin our net zero objectives. And particularly as well, when we look at the role of disruptive and progressive technology and digital solutions, which I know is an area of focus for you. But before we get into your investment ethos and approach, Tell us about you, Martin, and your background and journey to where you are today. Okay, well, I'll try and do that sort of briefly, but um, I've just always really liked growing businesses. Uh, And I did actually start off in the profession. I've trained with Arthur Anderson as a chartered accountant, having done a marketing degree and really wanted to blend marketing and finance initially um, to build businesses. Um, But I fell into technology uh, back in probably about the mid 90s, uh, just before the dot com boom. And then was on a sort of from from then on, uh, I was building software companies uh, and growing them from small to to, to, to pretty large. Uh, And what really got me into this sort of whole sustainability area, I guess, was during the um, sort of 2008 financial crisis. Um, the, the headline that bothered me the most 
if I remember it correctly, was, was that there were a million people unemployed, young people unemployed between the ages of 16 and 24. And to me, that just sounded absolutely horrendous because I kept on seeing the headline and not enough about what people were practically doing to address it. And it was around the time uh, shortly after that, that, that I was sort of thinking about what I was going to do next because I was exiting, exited the business that, that I'd sort of spent 10 years building up in around 2011. When I left Aris, which was the last business that I was running, which was a software company servicing the professions, actually, um, and I started to reflect on what was it that had made that business really uh, successful, which it was. Uh, I'd focused very, very specifically on balancing the needs of our key stakeholders. So we were private equity backed, and obviously the private equity investors had their, their own uh, sort of desires as what, what they wanted to see. But, but what I, when I, more and more I reflected on it, is that the needs of my two, two biggest key stakeholder groups, uh, customers and employees, were the ones that really drove the returns. So when you look at that in a sort of sustainability uh, context, the biggest value losses generally within, within businesses, keeping it very simple, are um, demotivated uh, employees, em employees that high turnover of employees. So that's clearly a loss of knowledge and damage to a business unless you create an environment that's really going to be a talent magnet, and develop people, uh, particularly young people as they grow through. Uh, and secondly, uh, customer loss. If you're too transactional or you're not creating a customer experience where you have a high level of repeatability, retention, whatever works best for your business to build that brand value, those are going to be your two greatest areas of, uh, of loss. Um, and so when you look at it really within the sort of ESG con context, the employee part is very much the, the, the social side. Governance is obviously all about, about making sure that, that uh, you do the right things and there's a high level of integrity. But the one thing, as I thought about it, I'd not really got involved enough in was what we're doing really around you know, our environment. Um, and particularly the more I learned about the acceleration and damage that we're doing to our planet and what will happen if we don't address it, I could see that where the purpose of a business is really what binds people to, to, together. Yeah, a lot of companies still now play lip service to that. But if, you, if you're authentic about it, if it's a real genuine desire, then that's actually the, 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 the glue that holds everyone together. As I grew businesses, when I was sort of talking, for example, about our financial results, some people could get excited about it. But actually, the thing that really people cared about were what we offered and what we were doing for, for our customers and our employees. That was, that was the glue that held everyone together. So it's a sort of longish answer, but, but that's what makes most sense to me, is that you're actually creating a virtuous circle that way. And if you get the inputs right, which are to do the right thing for your key stakeholders, then your investors will get, get the right outputs. If you try doing it the other way around and force it, then, then actually I don't think you'll get what you want out of it. I love the fact that you have stated that you're in the business of selling total experiences yeah. to all of your stakeholders and that ultimately your stakeholders should be your net promoters because if you're doing your job right then all of those that you impact or touch and influence within the sphere of your operations and influence will be talking about what it is that 
you do and will buy your product and service. So as you say, it becomes um, a sort of a virtuous circle of value add. Would would you, on the basis of what you've just said, would you redefine then, Martin, this concept of sustainability in a different way? I'm hearing a lot about the, the central place for being a purpose-driven organisation in your definition of that and it sounds there's a, there's a huge value statement or values statement behind that yeah no, i think it to me it's a little bit about redefining uh what capitalism is mm-hmm. uh, or maybe actually just re-looking at it maybe it's what it was in the first place and then it sort of went on a journey and, and came out in, in in the wrong place so, so for, for me, um, yeah, as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, I want to create great businesses that create value ultimately, however you define value, both financially and yeah, in the impact that, that that business has. And so therefore, you know, when you look at what we're trying to do with sustainability, you can't just tell people to do it. People have got to do it because they can actually see real value in it. And when I first started doing this about eight years or so ago, yeah, investing in businesses that would deliver impact as well as profit. Quite a few people said to me, well, hang on, if you're doing that, surely you're expecting lower returns. And I said, well, if you go in with that premise, then how on earth are you going to attract vast amounts of capital into it? Because who's going to want to go in for lower returns? That's just not the way that business works. But if people can actually see that they can create great businesses and they are sustainable in that they also last for a lot longer because it's not about a sort of short-term growth, high profit, and then a dive. You're actually building something for the long term. The only way you can really do that is by satisfying the needs of all your key stakeholders, including society. So, and if you do that, as I say, there'll be far less value leakage. You know, it will have that predictability about it and you'll grow something you know, much better, much more valuable. So therefore that's where the virtuous circle co- comes in. And I think the, the other element, sorry, just to add around experience, because again, trying to explain what I mean to different groups of people, I like to try and simplify it a bit. So one of the sort of analogies I've used is if you go to a restaurant and um, the food is fantastic, absolutely amazing food. Um, but but the person serving you is either rude or drops some food on you, and then the bill's wrong uh, when you come out. Are you being overcharged? Um, have you had a great experience overall? Probably not, because you haven't gone just for the transactional element of a meal, because you could have had that through takeaway. You've gone for the total experience. And I think that's the same. I found in software is we weren't just shipping software out. It it was the total experience that customers had with us at every touch point, and particularly the support that they needed as well to ensure that they got the best use out of it. And I think that experience element for pretty well every type of business is absolutely key. So it's a much more sort of inclusive and holistic approach, isn't it? Which I think um, was also at the core of the Descopter review which encourages a redefinition of GDP to be more inclusive of what we're doing. I mean, in your experience and and within what you've seen play out within the execution of your own investment strategy, do you see businesses that adopt this approach um, extend beyond the normal time horizons of businesses that typically and technologically, particularly in the technology sector, 
that, that might have shorter time horizons because of disruption and the pace of change and the rate of change. Just to be clear, when you say time horizons, in what, in what context? What do you, what... Well, there's so much change and innovation and movement and agility required for organisations nowadays in order to keep pace with the demands and needs of, of, of customers and society, the economy, as we look to uh, meet net zero targets. A business as established today may not expect to be the same business tomorrow, so to speak. Um, so either it will adopt a strategy that helps it sustain it through change, or it will fail because it can't move at the pace that it, it needs to. So we may see, and, and maybe this is something we can discuss, we may see just more churn within the inception and demise of businesses as you know, different businesses seek to meet the demands of the future. Okay, so I mean, life lifespans of businesses are a lot yeah. shorter than they were. I think there's been a lot of research yeah. done around that as to which were the great companies back, you know, back some time ago, and, and where are they now? But I mean, generally speaking, you know, I work in private businesses and uh, of a variety of different sizes, from sort of very early stage, yeah, through to to I guess what would be regarded as mid cap. Again, I, I try to take a fairly simplistic approach to it because I find it easier. Is that you, you've obviously got to start with the customer, and you know people say that, and then they don't do it. And certainly in the software field, which is where I spent a lot of time, you, you, it would be uh, described as the sort of product management piece. Product management, you know, in my eyes, is really about understanding the needs of your customers, anticipating what they might be in the future. And it's that second bit which, which quite often gets um, doesn't get addressed properly. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, it, it's yeah. Sometimes you have to guess what those needs might be in the future because even the customers haven't fully anticipated it. But they will give you the hint as to where it's going. And so I think quite often lifespans of companies and products are where they don't spend enough focus around that product management piece. And I think that goes for all businesses. So, so I, I wrote an article some time ago where yeah, I, I, I tried to liken it to the difference between uh, a bagel with a hole in the middle and a donut with a jammy centre to explain that I felt that the donut was the better model because the jam at the centre was the product management. And if you try growing a business with a hole in the middle, because that's where you should, yes, yeah, where most businesses start, which is identify, identifying a, a compelling need that hole will just get bigger and bigger and eventually will destroy the, the company. I'm sure Kate, Kate Rayworth would agree with that, wouldn't she? <laughs> 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 to use that analogy. Um, that's, that's very good. I mean, and, and the businesses that adopt fully-fledged ESG strategies would be engaging very meaningfully with all of their stakeholders. So I think that that reflects really what you're saying as well yeah that that engagement so um when we look at say the 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 core private equity market how do you think that market should adapt to its investment strategies to businesses that have uh, or are seeking to um, present themselves as ESG you know compliant businesses what what do you think the approach of private equity should be 
So I, I've worked with a lot of private equity firms. When I added it up, I think there were about 10 that I've actually worked very closely with, a few VCs within that, but generally within that sort of um, yeah, private institutional investment market. And it, it's difficult, Josephine, because my experience of most private equity firms, uh, yeah, understandably, if you go back the last sort of 15, 20 years, yeah, clearly, as, they, as, as is their reputation, very financially driven, which is understandable because they've got to produce returns, uh, and also quite short-term driven. Um, I think the private equity model can work really, really well because it adds some dynamism to the whole way that you look at a business and grow it. But, but where there's a, for me, a significant sort of detraction is that if you try and force the financial elements onto the company, you can actually end up destroying a lot of the value that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So if it's driven by the investor needs, first and foremost, to, to particularly with mid-market companies, to drive profit out, that goes right against building uh, um, the sustainability that I talked about earlier. So I've upset a number of private equity houses by sort of talking about it as you know, a bit like if you've got a racehorse, which you know, my last business, Iris, was in, in, in many ways, you know, you've got to make a choice between to keep on whipping it to, to, to get it to you know, race faster and win more races, or do you nourish it? And my approach is much more the, the, the nourishment of it in order to, to allow, allow it to win a lot more races rather than, than whipping it so hard that actually other elements of that stakeholder management um, get, get destroyed. So I think private equity will, by their nature, uh, they've got to believe in what they're doing. And this is where the danger of greenwashing car comes in, mm-hmm. is that there's got, to, there's got to be a genuine belief and desire to do it for all the right reasons and to see that actually you can create value, longer term value as a result of doing it. And so one, they've got to believe in it and do it. And secondly, I think you've got to have yeah, some form of regulatory framework around reporting to ensure that, 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 that there's transparency there and that it's harder to greenwash it. You think that culture is changing and kind of evolving quite naturally? I feel like we're sort of stepping into a new age where value and values are more kind of synthesised and becoming more balanced. Perhaps private equity is trailing behind a little bit along with some other industries, but do you feel do you feel like you're seeing that change happen organically? So, so Tilly, there's, there's definitely a change. So I started investing in sort of impact businesses, as I say, about, about eight years ago. Um, and yet no one really understood that. It sounds strange, but no one really understood within my network what I was doing and why I was doing it. About four years or so ago, I really started to see quite a big shift in understanding. And I think that's where the movement element really does start to take effect. A lot of what I've spent my time doing is actually connecting like-minded people up as well to try and help act as a catalyst for that movement. And the more people that do that, the better. I think where private equity will change will be probably, it'll come from within, from the entrepreneurs that they are backing who maybe demand that, that those changes happen and demonstrate why it makes sense. I'm sure there are you know, some out there within the PE community, you know, who do get it. Uh, well, I know there are, 
uh, and want to make it happen. But I think the mainstream, yeah, as with you know, uh, um, the sort of broader financial services market, it, 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 is it will be the businesses that start to demonstrate actually we can outperform over the long term by doing this. So therefore, it makes sense to do it. So there's got to be that proof point. At the very least, what we're seeing is private equity having to engage in the conversation it's out there it's it's necessary as frameworks for reporting as you alluded to martin develop um that will require both private and public businesses to be very transparent around their esg credentials and the science-based targets and other kpis that underpin their strategies for for growth uh, and sustainability so at the at the very least what i'm saying is a willingness to have a conversation, a willingness to engage and be active with investee companies to to talk about what this agenda means for business and, and how business should respond. I guess the net result then, uh, having undertaken exercises around reporting and transparency is what next? What does that what does that really mean for growth? What does that really mean for the development of a portfolio of businesses um, that sit within a private equity portfolio? Sorry, was that a question? Or, or? Well, it was more of a, a sort of a it's a sort of a statement of um, what what I'm seeing. It'd be interesting. I mean, I think it, you're saying it reflects what you've you you've seen in the market. Um, it leaves me wondering how private equity responds because they're seeing the pressure on them come to report effectively and they're they are seeing stakeholder pressure so if it doesn't come from within do we need more regulation to force private equity down a path that it might might not otherwise choose to go yeah it's a very good question i um if i go back in time a bit so probably about 15 years ago uh, certainly the private equity firms I was working with, because we were a mid-market company, they were going through a period of, I think, quite a lot of uh, external yeah, pressure and concern, I think, over regulation within the PE market. Um, and so, therefore, they decided proactively that um, we should be more transparent as a portfolio company. So we created an annual report in the same way as we would have done, in many ways, if we would have done it as if we were a public company. Uh, And a lot of the rationale behind that was one, ensuring that all our stakeholders could see what we were were doing. Um, But it was also, there was an element of of almost preempting some of that regulation by being Mm. more transparent over what we were doing. So that was 15 years ago. And I think we'll see more and more of that uh, proactive transparency and a bit back to Tilly's question earlier is the good thing about all of this is that the more that companies put themselves out there and jump onto the sort of bandwagon of ESG and sustainability from my point of view is really really good because yeah clearly the message is out now compared to say five years ago where there was not this level of discussion over uh, uh, ESG at all in mm-hmm. fact it's probably over in the last over, over the last two to three years it's become much more um, commonplace that's that's really really good because the other thing about the greenwashing is that the damage to your brand if you get caught mm-hmm. out is so significant that, that actually, when you're looking at the risk within the business, as PE firms and other, other other investors will do, it is not worth doing something and then not doing it 
properly you've yeah. got to make sure that you're authentic and if you're not authentic the damage yeah. is so much greater to you um it's where the sort of governance piece comes in and it you know it's not just about fines it's about you know brand you know destruction ultimately and, and loss of loss of customers by saying you're doing one thing and doing something else but i do think uh, a degree of regulation helps too i just happen to be feel that the more that can come from within because it's the right thing to do the more people do that the better rather than forcing it where, where then they just try and find ways around it and yeah, uh, um, you know, whatever rule you put in place, yeah, in most cases, there's always a way around it if you're creative, and that, that that's not helpful. Well, let, let's talk about innovation, if we may, um, Martin. What can we do to support and accelerate innovation in the move to net zero? So, the way I, I've sort of approached it is that. You know, I've worked in larger companies, and of course there's innovation within larger companies, but, but larger companies or larger organisations do tend, understandably, to get weighed down by a degree of bureaucracy, slower decision-making, and don't always attract the level of risk-taking and innovation that, 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 that is needed to make real change happen. So the beauty of the, the, the smaller companies is they've got that agility, uh, they, they spot opportunities, sometimes it's a niche, um, but what they lack quite often is the scale-up capability, both in terms of capacity, access to resources, distribution channels, a whole range of different things. So, so, so the best way, I think, to innovate is to encourage a lot more collaboration between smaller creative organisations that spot opportunities and make things happen and larger companies. That's what I like to try and encourage as much as possible. And one of the ways I've, I've done this within businesses that, that I've I'm involved in and been involved with is sometimes even within a mid-sized company is to flip out a corporate venture to do something a little bit riskier, uh, um, bit different, and to 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 try it out. And I think you know, well, not I think I can see you know more and more larger organisations looking at ways they can do that, and that's a really good thing. Uh, so that's where I think a lot of the innovation will come from if you just try and do it only from within then then it's it, it's much harder because sometimes the best talent that you've got uh, accessible to you is not within your own organization it's by, it's by it's by collaborating and do you think we need more innovative finance solutions and greater tax incentives to to support this innovation as well finance solutions um yeah i mean there's work going on you know on, on sort of green bonds and other areas that that will encourage it it's not an area i've got a great knowledge of yet yeah, clearly around investment and encouraging businesses to make investment obviously as a private investor things like um you know, the seis and the is scheme do help because people angel investors are taking big risks and that helps balance it because yeah undoubtedly you know if you invest in 10 20 businesses it will probably only be a small proportion if you're lucky that outperform and there'll be uh, uh, yeah, a reasonable number of them that either won't make it or you know, you'd be lucky to get your money back so, so i think putting something in place for private investors but also for businesses too you know to encourage investment you know like r&d tax credits but maybe you know, greater greater types of tax credits that are linked to you know, green investment or however you want to define it um have got to be a good thing uh, um, I'd like to see more of that. I think what's we're at quite an interesting time at the moment because we're obviously hopefully coming out of a pandemic 
into a very volatile, vulnerable economy at the same time as we're at the start of a decade in which we need massive change on the green agenda. Do you think that we, we've maybe been set back, hopefully not too much, but we maybe have been set back a bit in terms of the desire to take risk? And, you know, I think we need to really take risk at the moment, but I'm not sure if people will be so, they'll probably be more risk averse. So I guess, I, I guess really, Tilly, it depends on, on your mindset. Um, yeah, the pandemic has been horrific. It's been unfair in that some industries have suffered way more than others just because of the nature of what, what they do. But, but if you try and look at it as a catalyst for change, for positive change, bizarrely, I think it, it could end up being, uh, you have to make the most of a bad situation. I think certainly in terms of being a, yes, the people have described it as a sort of great accelerator for the use of technology and different ways of looking at things. It's also enabled some people to sit back, look at the environment that we've been creating, what damage we've done to it, and think about how we can do it differently. And if we can put the same energy into environmental change as we've done into to, yeah, the vaccine rollout and everything, that's a good thing. And unfortunately, climate change has got the, the ability to, to be a far worse pandemic than COVID-19, much worse. Yeah, what we're already starting to see in terms of the sort of shifting patterns of yeah, rain and flooding and heat, uh, yeah, and massive movements of people and major cities that that could end up being flooded. I mean, that that, that that's way bigger than than we've seen with COVID nineteen, which hopefully will be a period of a small number of years that will affect mm-hmm. us. Where, whereas, if we don't address the, this environmental challenge, it, it's really serious. Martin, you, you talked about the power of um, collaboration, and I love that, you know, bringing people together so that there's collective opportunity to accelerate solutions. If you think about the characteristics that are needed of leaders that help us move forward sort of quickly, what, what would you say the key attributes are and how do we help the likes of Tilly's generation develop those so, you know, the one word that comes to mind really is agil- agility. I have been very fortunate in my career in that I, you know, I've worked across a number of different functions as well as running businesses. I've worked across a number of different sectors and I've, I've tried to build a skill set that is pretty agile in that I'm comfortable doing different things and I, I enjoy it. So, you know, if you, if you look sort of back in the day where people used to join a company and be there for life obviously that's long gone so I think for Tilly's generation it really is about building those skills particularly particularly digital skills being agile enough to to see where things are going and to constantly learn new things I think it's about lifelong learning and also building your own sort of digital brand around what you stand for and what you're good at so, you know, it, it's a, in a way, it's a sort of portfolio career earlier on. That's not to say that you can't stay and work with a company for a long, long time. Of course you can. But but you might have different roles within that organisation. So I think sticking with just one core functional area can, can end up, uh, uh, you could end up being quite siloed and, and quite narrow. So the more that you can actually look beyond your own function and learn about others is going to encourage a lot more collaboration because you'll understand the needs of others and what they're trying to do better. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think the World Economic Forum actually said that, didn't they? That one of the greatest skills for the future is is agility. I feel like we all need to be entrepreneurs, Martin. <laughs> following in <laughs> we your all foot- are, aren't we? He's follow- following in your footsteps. <laughs> yeah. you know, we, all, we we all can be. You know, one of the things when I was building up Aris, you know, we we got to like twelve hundred people. So for a software company, that was quite a lot of people in the UK with about four hundred people in our engineering function and we started very very small uh, and as we bought other businesses I wanted to try and keep those entrepreneurs within the business for as long as possible because it helped just generate and, and act as a spark to others you know to your generation Tilly yeah you know, is even if you're working within a large organization think like an entrepreneur you know, think about yeah. how change can happen I, I've run a number of what I call future leader programs we've done reverse mentoring we've got sort of shadow boards you know, all sorts of ways of making sure that the, the you've got diversity, just not just in sort of gender and race and thinking, but also age as well. It, it is yeah, some of the best ideas have often come for, from yeah the younger people coming through. So yeah, that's so so important for an organisation that wants to be sustainable in that it wants to be there for the long term. Mm, definitely and it's actually really encouraging for me to hear because I think I think you have a background in languages as well yeah yeah Yeah, so my background is also languages and then I was kind of like well how am I going to use languages I should probably learn about business I did a master's in international relations and then decided to do this chartered accountancy qualifications it's really great actually for me and hopefully other people in my situation and of my age group to look at people like you and go it's hard work but it's also very much um rewarding and possible and look at what can be done yeah and I think creativity is key you know there, there was a very good book by Daniel Pink which I'd recommend called A Whole New Mind which if you've come across the book, The World is Flat, it's almost like the opposite view of that, which is really that that as more and more things get changed because of AI, because that will happen, a lot lot, lot of those professions that that, uh, can be automated and where more can be automated, the one thing that's required is creativity. So it's agility and creativity. It's the ability to look at and say, okay, well, machines can do quite a lot of that. That's a good thing. But what are the things that the machine can't do where where we can add real value? Yeah, yeah. And really important to remember that, I think, in an age where we're increasingly thinking the world's going to be run by robots and we're useless. You know, it's so nice to hear that actually um, there's definitely space for the creative human brain yeah there, ha- there, there has to be I mean I, I did a, a course a little while ago at something called Singularity University in California which is bringing people together from a whole range of different disciplines and looking at where technology is going to go and one of the reasons why we've had such advances in medicine uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine yeah a lot of it is to do with collaboration is people coming from different disciplines and looking at things differently looking at data yeah, looking at, at, at different profiles, that there's it's breaking those silos down and realizing that that yeah, different disciplines can help each other out, and that's the same in business too. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a really powerful message for us to finish on, Martin. And I I love the way that you've articulated the power of collaboration and how it can move us forward. Um, but shared your experience around the attributes and and, and really for you role modelling what many of us need to do in order to contribute to the race to zero. 
So thank you, Martin, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both very much. It's been really good to chat. Thank you. Thank you.